Hello and welcome to the Athlete Archives. Today, I'm going to discuss Herb Score. Herb was a pitcher for the Cleveland Indians and then the Chicago White Sox in the 1950s and is most remembered for being hit in the face by a line drive off the bat of Gil McDougald. I will be joined by a friend of mine who grew up listening to Herb Score call Cleveland games on the radio. Brian is a Cleveland super collector of memorabilia and sports cards. Welcome to the show, Brian. So, Brian, do you currently live in Cleveland? No, I'm, I'm in Columbus, but I'm from Cleveland. I was born and raised there. Uh, I, moved, I moved to Columbus in um, 2003 or four, And so I've been here since. So I'm still uh, just a diehard fan, all the Cleveland sports. So Herb uh, may be one of those guys that uh, I'm sure we all kind of know somebody who's maybe a little bit accident prone. At the age of three, was struck by a truck, breaking both of his legs. He missed a year of school with 10 months uh, bedridden with rheumatic fever. And then he broke his ankle again in high school and then broke his collarbone or separated his collarbone when he was in the minor leagues, um, slipping on some grass. So maybe a, a bit of a inauspicious start to uh, to his career. Uh, Herb was playing outfield and found success quickly as a pitcher. Uh, he and his parents, or I'm sorry, he and his mother moved to Lake Worth, Florida after his parents were divorced. And it was there where he would become a, a high school baseball star. He had a cannon of an arm, but struggled with control. He had six no-hitters in high school. Um, and led his school to their only state championship. And Brian, I, I'm sure you're a Bob Feller fan too. Oh yeah, yeah. They call him a left-handed uh, Bob Feller. It just the same, same skill set. I mean, like you said, maybe struggle a little bit every now and then with control. But you know, all those guys struggle a little bit with their control when you're when you're um, you know throwing it that hard. But uh, yeah, and he and we'll get to it. But I know he he replaced Bob Feller in the rotation. Ultimately, he definitely had a cannon. Uh, I wish uh, that we had Statcast data to know just how hard of a thrower he was. Um, and as we get into the the actual incident, I would also um, be real curious to know how hard that line drive was. Oh yeah, you know. Um, but we'll get there in a minute. So Herb, he definitely had a walk problem early on, and. I'll show his minor league stats here. So in 1952, in 62 innings, he had 62 walks. Uh, and then they bounced him down to single-A ball in Reading for 1953, where the control seemed to actually get worse. Uh, in 98 innings, he had 126 walks. Um, you're not going to get very far in baseball walking guys at that rate. No. Nah. He straightened it out for, for uh, 54. Right. And, that, and that's that's where he separated his collarbone was was that season uh, down at, at Reading. Uh, but thankfully, he did figure something out. While the big league club was winning the American League that year, a hell of a year, I'm sure, special to you, 111 wins in a 154-game season. Yep, and that's it. I don't know what happened in that World Series. We don't need to really get into the World Series. It, yeah. uh it was, uh, yeah, one of the best regular seasons you know, of all time. And that's, you know, it almost held him back. Um, maybe you're getting it to what he did in 54 in the minor leagues. Um, 
the Indians pitching staff led the league in ERA uh, by almost a full run. I mean, they were 2.78. The league average was 3.72 in 54. And then, I mean, they led the league in every, even the more advanced metrics now that they didn't keep track of then, but, and they were all healthy. So yeah, they, that's the key, they, isn't it? I form in 54. By all accounts, he was a very humble person. And the 1954 season I had read multiple times where he gave all the credit to his pitching coach, Todd Wil or Ted Wilkes, for uh, for helping him. And if we look at his stats for 54, in 251 innings, he had 140 walks. So he basically cut his walk rate by more than half. Um, where's the strikeout numbers? 330. 330 strikeouts? Yeah. 251 innings? I mean, that's, you know, even today, even with, you know, manipulating service time, whatever, you imagine a, a pitcher now in AAA, I mean, they wouldn't even pitch that many innings. They'd be lucky to get half that many innings. But um, it, it, as good as the Indians were that year, if you got a pitcher like that in AAA, there's no – I can't imagine them staying down. Yeah, exactly. Right. As soon as you have that kind of – I think that front half of his season, he would have been – should have been called up. Uh, yeah, today. yeah. I mean, even like, just the way the bullpens were used, then you would think of something like that this year. You'd say, "All right, well, you know, he's a starter long term, but for now, we could, you know, who wouldn't want a left-handed arm like that to come out of the bullpen?" Yeah, no doubt. Um, that was good enough for um, for him to be named the minor league player of the year. Uh, and as we said, the, the Indians in '54 were the American League champs. And who was their rotation, Brian? Do you know offhand? Had, um, it was early win, Bob Lemon. Art Houtman, Mike Garcia, and Bob Feller. Feller was it was the fifth um, starter by them, but he still had a pretty good pretty good year. Okay. And the others, I mean, they all. I, mean, I don't know that they missed more than a handful of starts, you know, between them. So they they, they were healthy. Um, again, the team the ERA was two seven eight versus the league average is three seven two that year. Uh, it was just such a good rotation, and they all pitched. A lot of you know, it's an old, obviously old school. They pitch, they pitch a lot of innings, they pitch a lot of complete games, and uh, they just kind of churn through one through five. I I don't know how old these guys were if if they were kind of uh, on the tail end of their career or in their prime. Well, Feller obviously was, was on the tail end. Lemon, um, Garcia, and Wynn, I think were more in the middle. And Houtman, I think had a good couple of years i think he's one of those guys that you never really heard of he had a couple of good years and then i don't know just flamed out. and maybe that's why they don't throw guys 250 innings anymore yeah, yeah there's a couple incidences of uh of maybe some uh pitching abuse uh yeah back then uh but in any case obviously after that 54 season in the minor leagues there's no way that he was going to to not make the team in 55 and he didn't disappoint. Um, the guy who struggled with walks just two years earlier ended up dominating the American League that, that uh, rookie year. Uh, he broke Grover Cleveland Alexander's record for strikeouts by a rookie pitcher with 245. And I believe that that is a record that still stands for the American League. Yeah, I think um, yeah, Dwight Gooden caught him in, uh, what, 80... 85. I think eight forty five, whatever his rookie year was. Yeah, and Herb did win Rookie of the Year, and again the humbler Herb score credited his pitching coach Mel Harder, uh, as a bit of uh, 
of fame in our Twitter group. Um, <laughs> well, he does. But he was he was a great pitcher himself, and he won over two hundred games. Um, he pitched for a lot of Indian teams that were sort of anonymous. I mean, obviously, like in the twenties, thirty before the divisional class, if you didn't win the pennant, you didn't really get any glory. And uh, so, a lot of people have never heard of Mel Harder, but he he was a great pitcher, and and he was a pitching coach for a while after mm-hmm. he uh, after he retired. And he has some some good faces on his cards. Uh, yeah, you know, um, based on that 56 season, I, 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 I'll show his statistics up on the screen, but he had a, a batting average against of 156, um, league high of 263 Ks, an ERA of 166. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And 9.7 strikeouts, uh, per nine, luckily he, anybody he had, uh, 11 complete games, which, yeah, obviously, yeah, it, was, it was different then. I think now they probably won 11 complete games in the majors last year. Right. Uh, unfortunately for the Indians that year, uh, in 55 and 56, they finished behind the Yankees. Uh, a perennial uh, nemesis there. Uh, in 1956, uh, the offseason, Joe Cronin from the Red Sox had offered Cleveland general manager Hank Greenberg $1 million for the rights to Herb score. And Dr. Evil when he, uh, $1 million. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, Greenberg and the Indians saw him as, as a, a cornerstone for what they were building. And, um, I mean, how could you not agree based on his track record at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think they probably saw it. You know, it, it's you hear about it in football. The Packers went from Brett Favre to um, Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, the Indians they had Feller from 36, 37 until um, you know, 54. He pitched in 55, but 54 was saying really his last year in the rotation. They probably figured we've, we've got another one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it looked that way. Even uh, at the start of 1957, he was off to an even better start. And uh, unfortunately, on May 7th of 1957, against the arch rival New York Yankees at Cleveland Stadium was when the the tragedy occurred. So Hank Bauer started the game out with a 5-3 ground out. And then Gil McDougal stepped to the plate, second batter of the game on a 2-2 count. Herb threw him a fastball that McDougal lined right back into Herb's face, unfortunately. And again, we don't have stat cast data. Who knows how hard the line drive was, uh, but there are plenty of balls that these guys are hitting over 100 miles an hour today. We know up to 120 and more. Sure, it was a, you know, a fastball coming in. That you know, Those are the fastest ones going back out. Right. So I did some real embarrassingly simplified calculations. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ignoring wind resistance and deceleration of the ball at a hundred miles an hour off the bat. I calculated that Herb had roughly 300 milliseconds before the ball hit him in the face. And that's just not, that's just not much time to really do anything. Uh, in fact, I, I continued to kind of figure out what that actually means in real life. And, uh, Scientists say that it takes about 150 to 300 milliseconds just to visually track a moving object. So by the time he figured out that the ball was coming at him, he had he had no time to do yeah. it. Yeah. 
it's amazing it doesn't happen more often dude i i i know i want to get on that too i want to touch on that because uh my son had a comebacker to the mound that hit the top of his head and took the little beanie thing on the top of the baseball head off wow to your point on the timing there's just no time to react even to try and you know get lucky and, and throw your glove up there's just you know time to process that no and uh it's still happening today i mean the Probably every year somebody gets hit, but even uh, like on the Braves, uh, Jackson Stevens got hit uh, last year or the year before. Square in the forehead, the ball bounced. I think the ball bounced in the right field. I mean, it's it just, you know, there's just no time to do anything. Yeah. Oh, right off Jackson Stevens. That ricochets into shallow right field. One run is in. Let's hope Jackson's all right. How in the world is he on his feet after that batted ball hit him on a line in the forehead? Well, with with Herb in particular, I know Herb's delivery left him defenseless. And when he got hit, it hit him uh, near the right eye. The ball bounced to third base. Vic Wirtz caught the ball for the putout and ran to the mound but stopped short when he saw the the aftermath. And to McDougal's credit, after hitting the line drive, ran to the mound, he knew it was yeah. serious. I know the ball hit Herb in the eye, broke his nose, broke his uh, uh, cheekbone, and basically immediately uh, impacted the eyeball itself. Well, I know that uh, McDougal said, I read he had said that if, if Herb score couldn't play again, then he wasn't going to play again. I obviously score missed the rest of the season. I don't know if McDougal, I mean, maybe he just kind of figured if he doesn't come back the next year. But yeah, I mean, he was pretty, I think, which I, you know, I think anyone would be pretty uh, devastated by it. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine the, how, how he must've felt. I, I did read that he wanted to come out of the game. Uh, they continued the game and um, his manager wouldn't let him come out of the game. <laughs> Herb incredibly, would recover much faster than I, than I would have thought from, from an injury like that. He was back on the field, not playing, but back on the field, shagging fly balls by the end of the season, which seems miraculous to me. Um, and then back on the mound for 1958, the end of his career didn't, didn't go as well. And he himself was saying that his problems after the accident were not because of him being afraid of, of being hit again, yeah, but he was suffering from arm issues. Yeah, he um, he tore a ligament in his arm. Um, I'm, I'm cheating. I wrote some things down too. Uh, in '58, uh, when he came back, and was, I think that's just always sort of been the legend in Cleveland that he was never the same after that. And kind of going to what you said about his humility, maybe he just didn't want to use that. Um, but what he had said was well, he. he he told Terry Pluto, who's a um, longtime Cleveland sports writer, author, that uh, after he hurt his arm, he kind of changed his motion a little bit. And he, and, you know, he kind of blames that for, um, you know, more than anything else for what sort of changed the, uh, you know, shortened his career, derailed it, changed the trajectory, whatever, whatever you want to use. But I, I mean, obviously, I don't know whether it's, 
that's his humility, not wanting to, um, you know, admit that maybe, I don't know how you couldn't be uh, afraid of the same thing happening again. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I would think it would be interesting to know if there was any mental health involved because, or like any kind of therapy counts. Because, I mean, I don't know how you get back on the mound after that. Yeah. Exactly. So I had listened to a podcast, another podcast in preparation for this, and they were speculating that his elbow issues may have started because he changed his delivery to not leave himself in such a vulnerable uh, position. Uh, these games just, they weren't televised and they weren't archived. Right. So you can't go back and look. And I was say now you, someone could go back and, and you yeah. know, do frame by frame analysis of it. And uh... yeah. The other thing, when he was uh, in, I think it was in, in Indianapolis, he became good friends with Rocky Calavito, um, and lifelong friends, and they were traded. I think within, I think within days of each other. Yeah, yeah, they were roommates in yeah. the minor league, and then and then continued that way into the major league level. I didn't grow up in the Cleveland area, but I guess Rocky Calavito was a was a huge fan favorite. Oh yeah, they. I mean, people, um, you know, particularly my parents' age, they they still bristle at you know. You say Harvey Keen, they, they like that's the first thing they think of. Just, um, just man, he wasn't a bad player, but uh, yeah, I mean, he was a fan favorite. He, he was he was you know home run hitter. He was good looking. He yeah, you know, I guess pretty good with the fans. So. Um, you know, and that was you know now I think Cleveland fans are conditioned that the for the most part the player gets too good they're going to get traded because they're not going to resign them. But at the time that wasn't the case. They just uh, you know it was a baseball trade. I mean, Keen was a good hitter, and I think they just maybe underestimated the fan response. You know, you you had touched on on this earlier about the pitchers today still getting hit and. One of my favorite episodes to research and put together was on Ray Chapman and uh, obviously another Cleveland Indian. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not aware, Ray died after being hit in the head uh, by a pitch from, a, oddly enough, uh, another Yankee uh, was involved with Carl Mays. And it took over 50 years before batters were required to wear a, a helmet at the plate. And uh, even then there was some pushback for <laughs> somehow unbelievably now it just seems outrageous to even think about going up to up to bat without a helmet on but oh yeah um as i said you know this past season ronald acuna jr hit a ball 121 miles an hour we have uh o'neill cruz Giancarlo stanton aaron judge they've all hit balls uh 121 plus miles an hour yeah and uh and i don't know what it's going to take for pitchers to wear some protective, I mean, gosh, I don't want them to wear a mask like a softball player or or anything like that. But man, it's it just yeah. I mean, the Indians even in, in sixteen and seventeen, um, I think it was twenty sixteen. Carlos Carrasco got hit in the shin with a line drive in one of the last couple weeks of the season and broke his shin, missed the playoffs. And then in 27, I think it was 2017, Trevor Bauer um, got hit in the hand with a line drive. And I think he sort of came back for the playoffs. I don't, I don't remember. I may have the years mixed up, but both of those guys, um, 
both got hit, you know, hit with line drives, broke bones. It's um, you're close. <laughs> Six sixty. Yeah, it's ridiculous, really. I mean, certain things you're never going to be able to protect against. You know, Charlie Morton got hit in the shin uh, against the Dodgers and ended up breaking his leg the next inning when he came out uh, after it had been fractured. Um, but you know, it's the it's the head injuries that that yeah that, that scare me. And certainly, I think if you take a shot to the temple, I think that that's the most dangerous. And I know that they have Kevlar inserts that they can put into the helmet. Uh, I'm sorry, into the hat that kind of at least kind of if if you get hit there, it'll it'll uh, you know kind of absorb some of it. Yeah, or, or at least spread out the the the, uh, the source of the impact. But yeah, uh, yeah, God, I, I hope I hope we don't have uh, another Chapman level kind of incident. Yeah. Remember John um, Olerud used to wear a batting helmet in the field. Who? Pardon? Uh, John Olerud. Yeah, Blue Jays. Yeah, and there, there was a story. I don't remember why he had, but there's a story where um, he, he was you know Ricky Henderson's in the in Toronto, and then again later with the Mets. And Ricky Henderson, you know, looked at him. He said, "You play first base. You wore you wear a helmet." And he said, "Yeah." So I I played with a guy I think in Toronto who, who did that too. And Olerud said, "Yeah, yeah, that was me." <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> just it just it, it'll it'll take some time for people to get used to it but man, yeah i mean there's if there's one thing that we've learned from the last decade with the nfl you, you've got to protect that brain oh yeah um so uh before we get into his announcing career uh let's talk about his baseball cards I only I have a couple. He, he, most of what I collect is, is older. Um, so to me, Herb Score that's kind of a modern uh, era, which obviously it isn't. But um, it's his it rookie card from '56 uh, tops. How was that? Yeah, that's a beautiful. Oh, see, look at that delivery. Yeah, that is a great. Yeah, and it's great. the cards themselves are fun. That's back when they had the cartoons on the back and yep. glare there. But um, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a great car. I, I I like the set. You got the a nice up close picture. You got that the action shot. Um, and then I have this is I don't know what year, but you know Topps Archives where they do re releases. Um, trying to yeah, that's a that's yeah. autograph. Yeah, so this, it was an autograph that released with the um, the archive set. So it's a, it's a reprint of the card, obviously, but through Topps, and then. Um, this is his his uh the his wiener card. The wiener the world awaited. The wiener the um, world awaited. Is that Khan's card hard to find? Um I don't know that they're difficult to find. I wasn't specifically looking for it and I you know I, I came across it. I think um you know like any of these especially like the food releases, a lot of it depends on the, the condition. So yeah. you know, some of the um like the dandy potato chips cards that were literally they you are know, packed in a bag of grease. So some of those are harder with based on condition or the the hires root beer cards that have the tabs that you could tear off and send in to get um you know some kind of premium they would send you back. But you know where the were those cons cards were they packaged in with the hot dogs? Yeah, I think you know you get um the pack of what eight hot dogs and I think these were probably underneath Okay. Uh, obviously not contacting with the hot dogs, but between you know laminated in, in the plastic, you probably peeled off the top, and the, and the card was sitting in there. I like the card, and the thing that for me 
that just adds more to the card is the tagline at the bottom. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the wiener the world awaited, uh, which, which is a pretty, I guess you know, a, a pretty good compliment. You, you'd like to think that you were the only one in the set. You know, it's it, it loses some of its meaning when you got you know, if you've got a hundred other players in the set that, yeah, they you like to think it was just me that they were waiting for, but. <laughs> Yeah, well, he uh, he definitely has a, a soft spot in my heart now. I, I don't have any herb score cards, but I'm definitely going to uh, add him to my eBay search. Yeah, and, they're, and they're, you know, obviously they're not particularly expensive you know, relatively compared to other cards from that set, other cards from, um, you know, to your point, he had a couple of great years, but, uh, you know, he's not, not all famous. It's, 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 it's nice collecting some of those kinds of players. Where... Yeah, I've got a little. So my collection is is small by standards of of a lot of the guys that that you and I know, um, but I've got some oddballs in there. You know, I've got I've, I've got uh, the seventy five Herb Washington that because I did because I did a an episode on him. You know, I've I've got uh, I've got the uh, the player run for Fidrich. I've I've got yeah. the uh, the Ray Caldwell from the nineteen fifteen Cracker Jacks. Uh, oh, see, I, I need. Um, I, I've got my the 1920 Indians uh, cards. I have cards for everyone who's everyone who played in that in that series that has a card in a Cleveland uniform. And Caldwell doesn't have one right. in a Cleveland uniform. And I'm kind of torn because it's such a big part of that team, mm. you know, to just leave them out. Um, but I and I've, and I've looked at the Cracker Jack card before, and um, I. If he was in Cleveland uniform, it'd be different. But I don't know that, as an exception, I, I don't. Uh, I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Yeah, and you know, just to keep going on this this path, um, I really came to appreciate and have a soft spot for Chapman. And yeah, he just does not have. I mean, he's got the sporting news thing, but like there, unfortunately. Uh, there are no Cracker Jacks of him. There's no, uh, oh, you're pulling something out. Yeah. No, this is yeah. the closest I was, I've been able to get is the um, blanket, blanket uh, because he had, there are a handful of, you know, those, like the 1917, the different retail releases, basically, some of the chocolate cards, but they're so hard to find. And even yeah. if you do, it's it's three $4,000. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's almost un, it's not unattainable, but it's pretty tough. I mean, I can't afford one, and I've been looking. I can't find one anyway. I'm looking yeah. for it, but even but I know if I find it, it's probably still going to be uh, a little bit out of reach. So, let's say Ray Caldwell. We're talking about guys getting hit by things on the mound. Ray Caldwell fits in there. I didn't. So that's why I have his Cracker Jack. Is I I did an episode on him. Yeah. I, I just happened to be listening to sports talk radio one day and they said today on this day in 1920, Ray Caldwell was hit by lightning, got up and finished the game. And I was like, what? <laughs> so that's, that started me on that tangent. I was like, why, why, why don't I know this story? Well, how come I've never heard of this guy? And uh, yeah. So I, I also, I became... so you remember, I guess you probably know. So he, he had, um, when he came to, to Cleveland, he, he, Chris Speaker had him like on a program. He, he asked you know, why his contract didn't have anything about about drinking. He, he was an alcoholic, 
and the speaker said, you know, you can pitch, then you go out and drink for two days, and then you have to, I forget what it, what it was, but um, there basically there's a concession to it. So, you know, you can do it, just do it like this, and as long as you're ready to pitch. Yeah, actually, speaker wrote into the contract that he had to basically drink the, the, the day uh, after pitching. Um, <laughs> so he was basically trying to get him to, to get it out, you know, go, you, you, and I don't want to see you at the ballpark. Like after the day you pitch, spend that day drinking <laughs> and two days later, I want you back. And, uh, uh, that unfortunately for, for a Caldwell, that was his, I mean, he, that was his Achilles. Uh, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of guys back then were hard drinkers and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, he's a great story. There's so many good ones. So after Herb finished playing, uh, he had a long run uh, with Cleveland Indians TV and then base uh, radio. So he was an announcer. Uh, I think he was the color guy on TV from 1964 to 1967. And then he became the radio guy from 68 for what, uh, 30 years until the, uh, the World Series against the Marlins in 1997. Yeah. So uh, you obviously grew up with him. Uh, I would love to hear any stories you might have about the impact that he's had on you. He, I mean, so he started, you know, you said in 64, basically from 64 to 97, he was a few years TV and then, and then radio. Uh, Joe Tate, who's another, like a legendary Cleveland announcer, uh, he did the Cavs games. He did some TV, he did some TV for the Indians uh, over the years. And I mean, his line was Herb Score has seen more has seen more bad baseball than anybody you know anybody in the history of the game, because in the thirty years that he that he was a broadcaster, they had six seasons above five hundred. Oh. No, it was for the first thirty years, like so from sixty four to ninety four, and then ninety four until they retired ninety seven. They had some they had some great teams, but um, I mean, as a kid, I, I mean, I'm fifty, so I was you know born in seventy three. In the 80s games, I think they started at 7.30 then. Um, and when I was young, I would get in bed and listen to the game on the radio. Um, and I never made it up all the way. But uh, I, you know, just driving in the car or in the summer, it's kind of like a soundtrack. Yeah. Um, I remember when, when the Indians were on the West Coast trying to stay up late enough just to like, be able to hear an inning or two. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a, a local sports legendary guy. Pete Franklin was like one of the first uh, sports talk guys in the, in the country. He was um, kind of obnoxious, and that was his shtick. And he would hang up on you and yell at you. And uh, I remember, so I remember like listening to him until the, trying to get through until those games started. But um, he was, you know, kind of like his humility. He he didn't it didn't bother him. He kind of didn't, he took the same approach. He never really um, got on the team. And this is before, this is when they were bad because they made bad decisions, not when they were bad because they couldn't afford to sign players or keep players or, you know, there was no competitive imbalance then other than of the, the Indians' own creation. Um, so it was, it was nice, I think, that he got to hear, that his last few years he did get to, you know, he called, uh, you know, Tony Pena hit a big game-winning home run in the first playoff game in 95. I think it was the 15th, 16th inning. Uh, he called uh, the last out in in the game where the Indians clinched the division. 
to pop up to Jim Tomey against the Orioles. So he got to make some big calls. Um, but he, he, Tom Hamilton, who's the, the announcer now, um, he and everyone in Cleveland loves him. It's not Herb's score fault. It's not Score's fault that teams are no good. I, I think everyone likes their announcers if they if they get to you know hear exciting things. Yeah, the Indians. Yeah, you know, they haven't won a World Series. They've had a lot of good baseball over the last you know, 20 years or so. And so a lot of, you know, everyone loves Tom Hamilton because he got you know, this call and he gets excited. And here it comes. A swing and a smash to first by the diving Vaughn. Down the right field line. Kicks into the corner. Ramirez on his way to second. Head first slide. Safe and in to score is Jimenez. And another hustle double right over the bag at first. Now Hosey and Anderson square off. They're fighting. They're swinging. Down goes Anderson. Down goes Anderson. Yeah, Herb score didn't have a lot of that to uh, <laughs> to, to get excited about. He kind of told a story. He, he has New York accent that. Um, you know, sometimes you weren't sure what he was saying. Sometimes like, he wasn't, he would mix up innings. He would not to the extent of like a Harry Carey, but, yeah. um, you know, they're in Detroit and he thought they were in Chicago or he wasn't paying attention on a play. And he, you know, had to like ask whoever the, the, they really do play by play in color. They're, they always sort of alternated innings. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just, Baseball is every day. You know, Joe Tate did the Cavs, great announcer. Most of those games are always on TV, so you don't listen as much. Um, football, obviously, it's, there's 16 games a year, maybe more if you root for a team that you know makes the playoffs sometimes. But for my lifetime, it's pretty much been 16 games a year. Um, but baseball, it's 162 games, and especially back in the 80s, they weren't all on TV. Most of them weren't. I think maybe maybe you got 20 or 30. Um, so that's how you, you know, that's how you followed it. And it was the voices. I still remember some of the commercials even. Um, so yeah, it's weird, I guess, having an attachment to someone who in theory brought me misery. You know, like we're talking about the, the, the Browns. Would you go back to the same restaurant for lunch every Sunday? If it was no good. I mean, I listened to the same shitty baseball on the radio and tried <laughs> to, get to hear a couple innings in Seattle when the team was probably, you know, 40 and 60 at that time. And um, so I, I don't even know why I did it, but yeah, it was. They were your team. They were my team. And he, yeah, he was, uh, he was the voice. Yeah. I, 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 on the radio. I, I mean, I wish I could sync it up better sometimes. Uh, that's the only saving grace for Apple TV broadcast games is that um, if you, if your team plays on Apple TV, they have a way that you can sync your local radio broadcast. Oh, really? With their video. And that's oh. awesome. So yeah. We have a great guy here, Ben Ingram in Atlanta, who's just, he's just phenomenal. He and Joe Simpson do the radio now. And uh, man, that's, it's, if I could do that, I would be doing that for every broadcast. Um, but I did see uh, that the Indians, the WWE, uh, that apparently had, some massive 50,000 watt station. So, yeah, uh, I guess they had quite the reach. They, that was their tagline it was 38 states and half of Canada, the 50,000 watt super station. Or, um, and there's a story 
uh, Joe Tate when he was doing maybe it was a that must have been a radio game. Um, I think they were in Seattle and it was raining, and so it was it, it was it was it was late. It, you know, it was probably one two in the morning in Cleveland. They and they said you know anyone who's listening to the radio send in a postcard. Whoever the furthest away, whoever's the furthest from Cleveland gets. I don't know what they gave them, but they said they got postcards from. I want to say St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, uh, wow. other places. So, and I, you know, I don't know if it was to the, the extent of like you know, the Braves on TBS or the Cubs on WGN, where you know there are people who are fans of those teams because they didn't they live somewhere where there wasn't baseball. Yeah. So, uh, but I don't know that there are people in. Uh, you know, I don't know if the Guardians have a following in St. Croix now, or if you know if it even some of the more you know, upstate New York or, uh, you know, Northern PA where it was probably picked up and they don't necessarily have a local team. I don't know if the people who listened, but it was, they could, it was, uh, yeah, it definitely got there. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so after, after he left, uh, I don't know why he retired in 97, but, uh, maybe it was just time. Uh, but in 1998, he, uh, he was in a bad car wreck. I'm yeah. sure you know all about that. I think he pulled out in front of a truck. Uh, I think he was in the hospital for a while. Yeah, I think at least a month. Uh, I was looking at that day too. It's uh, and ultimately he was cited for running a stop sign. Just to add insult to injury, the he yeah, got yeah. for it. So, yeah, you think that would yeah that he learned the lesson enough, but uh, yeah. Uh, and then he had a stroke in 2002 um, after pneumonia and a hospital stay. He ended up passing away in November of 2008 at the age of 75. Uh, after he after the accident, he did um, he threw out I think on his opening day I think opening day in '99. So he came back. He was able to um, you know recover up to you know get out and just throw the the uh, the opening pitch. Um, but yeah, I mean it was I'm not sure what he did after I think he stayed in Cleveland. I think he's buried uh in Cleveland, I think I saw. Oh, okay. So he's still still there today? Yeah. Brian, are there any big radio calls by Herb that jump out to you as most memorable? Um I mean the the, the clinching game in ninety five just to me because that after I remember sitting in in college. I think it was this might be even a Saturday. It might have actually been my birthday, September seventh. Um, and I was watching the game, and we had there was a party going on in my apartment. I was like going back and forth, sitting in my room watching, and um, yeah, that was like I, I mean, I still remember a pop up. Jim told me who played third base at the time. Mason delivers. Little tap up in the air, third base side. Waiting is Tommy. Foul territory. The game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Um, but there's a home run that Tony Pena hit against the Red Sox in game one of the division series that year. Tony Pena, three balls, no strikes. A long drive, left field, way back. That is. The Indians have won it in the 13th inning. 
as Tony Pena circles the bases. He's got his arms thrown up in the air. He is really excited. The entire Indian dugout waiting for him at home plate. Tony Pena on a 3-0 pitch in the 13th inning hits the home run and the Indians win 5-4. But even his, I was reading, his last call, he signed off after game, it was game seven of the 97 World Series, which kind of like the 54 World Series when we talk about. Um, but if we were to talk about it, uh, it was sort of a humble, you know, sign off. It just, you've been great to me. I hope you're as great to whoever sits in this chair after me. Um, final score, Marlins four, Indians three. I blocked it out after that. But, um, oh. but yeah, I mean, that's which is a shame. Out, out of all those years, uh, it took him until his last two or three years to really have those kinds of signature calls. Yeah. Well, yeah. And again, true to his nature, the way the humility that he ended that final broadcast with, uh, I did hear that myself. Yeah. Well, Brian, thanks for your time. Uh, I appreciate yeah. it. And, uh, maybe I'll get you on. I, it's odd that, you know, I've gone through and I look at some of the guys that I've done these episodes on and, uh, there's an inordinate number of Cleveland guys involved. Uh, well, we have a colorful history, even though we, you know, we may not have a lot of wins, but we got a lot of uh, a lot of good stories, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, man. All right. Thank you. I'm going to leave you with this video segment archived from the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's an interview by Bob Wolf in 1959 of Herb Score during pregame batting practice. Wolf gives Herb the mic and asks him to evaluate Rocky Calavito. And you can see how comfortable he is with a microphone and how easily he can talk about the game, foreshadowing his long career in broadcasting. Thank you for your time. Take care. Hi, everybody. Bob Wolf speaking along with Herb Score of the Cleveland Indians. Herb Score is the roommate of Rocky Calavito, and Rocky is the roommate of Herb Score looking at the other way. Herb, I guess you tell fellows are more than uh, roommates. Your, your real uh, close friends have been for many years. Isn't that That's right? right, Bob. I think we're more like brothers than we are friends because uh, we've been together a long time, and uh, uh, even during the wintertime, we stay pretty close together. It's a real good relationship. Herb Rocky has just stepped in the batter's cage, so you take over the microphone and, and tell our viewers a little about Rocky's batting style, okay? Fine, Bob. Well, Rocky stands about midway uh, back in the batter's box. He, ha he has a rather closed stance, and he doesn't strike quite as far as he once did, which probably has helped make him a better hitter. If you notice while he's swinging here in batting practice, that ball he just hit was outside, and he, and he just went right into the ball and hit it to right field. I think one of the things that has really helped Rocky is his ability to learn to wait on the ball, which most young ball players uh, have a tendency to be anxious, and that was Rocky's problem. Now, if you'll notice, he has very quick hands, uh, and that has really made him a better hitter, waiting on the ball. He now realizes that he has real good, quick hands, and that is why he's able to wait longer and hit that curveball better now. Rocky was always a real good fastball hitter, and he still is today. But I would venture to say that most of his uh, home runs now come off the breaking ball because he sees more of them, and uh, he just learned to hit them and wait on a ball. Right there is a good example. He hit that ball, uh, I don't know how far, a long way, about 350, 360 feet, and he just had a nice, easy, relaxed swing on it. There's another one that was way out over the plate, and he hit it to deep left center field. In fact, it went in the seats out there. 
a real good hitter. One of the things I think about Rocky, and uh, I think this is interesting to young ball players as well as anybody else, is his uh, determination and confidence. That's actually what's made Rocky the hitter he is. Uh, a few weeks ago, Rocky had a little bad streak, and he was 0 for 18. And uh, I'd see him after the game. He'd, he'd come into the room, and he'd say, well, Rumi says, uh, I'll get him tomorrow. I have never seen Rocky discouraged or, or down. And it happens to all of us. I know I'm the supreme pessimist of our room, and he's the optimist. Uh, Rocky will say a day of a game, well, I'm going to go out. I feel good today. I think I'll get a few hits. I'll say, well, I hope we win. And uh, he, he more or less figures he's going to do it. I just say to myself, I hope we can do it. Real good, determined hitter. Rocky has many different mannerisms. You'll see him in a batting circle or before he gets up at bat, stretching and putting the bat behind his head and stretching his muscles. And uh, just a real determined baseball player. I